This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by REI Co-op. They want to make the outdoors the largest level playing field on Earth. And this spring, they're kicking off new classes, events, and travel programs designed specifically for women. And they're also churning out some cool new gear. And not just the smaller, pinker version of a men's product. Ash Price is a senior gear designer for Technical Packs at REI. What One thing that really bothers me is that a lot of packs used to just be quote-unquote unisex, and that really meant that they were built for a man, and if a woman really wanted to use it, she could, but it wasn't going to be as comfortable for her. Ash has been working to update a backpack called the Flash 45 for women's bodies. The new model has load-stabilizing technology, contoured hip belt, a breathable back panel, and attachment points for all your gear. Oh, and starting in mid-April, you can get it in bright red. It's not something that's meant to blend in and kind of go under the radar. It's it's bold, it's out there, and I think it's a nice way to kind of like take your spot in the outdoors. Check out the Flash 45 or sign up for a free backpacking class at rei.com slash forceofnature. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches, stories from our writers in the field. If you caught the show last week, you already know we're trying to do something a little different here on the podcast. Over the course of the next few months, we're going to be airing this mini-series called The Double X Factor. It's all about women and the stuff they do in the outdoors, and it's part of a bigger campaign both on the podcast and the magazine, to start telling more stories about women and doing more stories by women. Florence Williams is our host for these, and they're produced by Phoebe Flanagan. And I'll hand it over to them in just a second. But first, there's this quote that I really like from a world-famous mountaineer. It says, You never conquer a mountain. You stand on the summit a few brief minutes, and then the wind blows away your footprints. But the mountaineer who said that Arlene Bloom, who is the subject of our story today, she might have been being a little too modest, because she stood on a lot of summits, and while her literal footprints might have been blown away, you can still look at the climbing world and see the mark she made. Here's Florence. Arlene Bloom is an environmental health scientist, a writer, a mountaineer. That's an endangered newt. Isn't it adorable? Come see its face. It has a, a lover really of newts. Hi, endangered newt. It's sort of brown and... It's moving at a sprightly pace. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't step on it. Yeah. We're in the Berkeley they Hills like the behind Arlene's house. They are at 72, she hikes here every day. Rain or shine, obviously. Good find. Arlene once walked across the entire Himalayan range. And before that, in 1978, she actually led the first expedition that got Americans to the summit of Annapurna. That's the 10th tallest mountain on Earth. And one of the most dangerous. There is no room for the slightest miscalculation. And it takes eight hours to reach the summit at 26,545 feet. The others strain upward to see the triumph which they all share. On the top of Annapurna stand the first Americans. 
Oh, and those Americans on top, they were women. I think it was a very big deal. Um, And I think it was a big deal for a variety of reasons. This is Katie Ives. She's the editor of Alpinist magazine and a climber herself. And she's been gripped by this expedition since she was a kid. Yeah, I mean, I've never become so obsessed with a story as I did with this one. The climb itself was dramatic and intense, partly because of the circumstances, and partly because it was carrying the weight of the women's movement. Remember, this was 1978, and that colored everything, from how it was conceived to how it was celebrated and condemned in its aftermath. Katie wrote an oral history of the climb for the May issue of Outside. She interviewed scores of participants, tracked down Sherpas, family members. I just felt so moved that people were willing to share their memories of this experience, which had been very intense, you know, and had very intense positive connotations for them, but also, you know, had, was bound up with a lot of memories of grief. Grief because not everyone made it out alive. The climb proved to be this profound and complicated moment in mountaineering history. And at the center of it all was Arlene, a nerdy girl from Chicago, raised by a single mom and her grandparents. I grew up in a very small stuffy house where everyone chain smoked and played loud TV and yelled and screamed a bunch at each other. And I would run outdoors, even in the freezing winter, and shovel snow. And I loved being out in the cold and the ice and the snow. And the worse the weather, the happier I was. I just always feel wonderful outdoors, a sense of freedom, of expansiveness. And, uh, well, I would climb up in a cherry tree, and I liked the climbing, and I liked kind of being above all the hassle and turmoil. And there were times when your mother and your grandmother would tell you, no, you can't do piano lessons, or no, you can't go to kind of the advanced school. Um, And it it seemed like when they said no, you kind of got tougher. Yeah, well, I guess I try hard. (laughs) I've always felt I'm not a particularly good athlete, but very goal-oriented and determined. Arlene's soft-spoken, but stubborn in a good way, and fierce. In your childhood, when did you first realize that being a girl was something that people wanted to hold against you or that would hold you back? You know, I felt pretty lucky that I was raised mostly thinking girls could do whatever they wanted. And I do remember I was went to religious school where I wanted to read the prayers and it was conservative Judaism where only boys are supposed to read the prayers. So I was really shocked when I was told that, that I couldn't read the prayers. So it was a surprise for you to find out. Yeah, I was, I was a bit outraged. And, and I was very lucky. I went to Reed College and started climbing there and doing chemistry. And it's a very egalitarian place. And at Reed, I really didn't have a clue that women weren't supposed to be chemists or weren't supposed to climb high mountains. And that in itself was remarkable because this was the 1960s. There were not a lot of women in PhD programs or in chemistry departments. No, I went to MIT where there were four women and about 495 guys in the graduate student dorm. So we were unusual. And it, it, was, it, was, it was challenging. 
because you know the kind of hilarious thing was there were very few women's bathrooms and I would have to jog long distances and be late for classes sometimes. Right, no bathrooms anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I and I remember the story of you first thought about going to Harvard for graduate school, and and why did you decide not to do that? I really wanted to go to Harvard because the Harvard Mountaineering Club was just famous in the '60s. They had done incredible ascents in Alaska and done some of the first Himalayan climbs, and I was sort of in awe, and I got into Harvard for graduate school, and I went and visited the Harvard Mountaineering Club, and they said, you know, we're sorry, but we do not admit women into the Harvard Mountaineering Club, and I couldn't believe it, and so I actually changed and went to MIT <laughs> instead, because they did have an MIT outing club that didn't admit women. That must have just been infuriating. It D- didn't seem fair. That was just the first time she experienced sexism in the mountaineering world. But it wasn't the last. Later, when she wanted to climb Denali with friends from grad school, she was told that women could only go to base camp as cooks. And she had other stories. I mean, the famous story was I applied to go on an expedition to Afghanistan that uh, friends were going on. And the leader wrote that even though I had more high-altitude experience than any of the other applicants, he thought having one woman and nine men on a team might cause excretory problems on the open ice, <laughs> which was a great line. What does that really mean? Like, he was he was worried about the bathroom scene? He's, I guess so, yeah. But, you know, he he actually later became a friend of mine. You know, that's, those times, people just thought about things differently. Arlene wanted to prove that American women did have a place in the mountains. She still had her eyes on Denali, so she organized the first all-women's climb. And then in 1976, she became the first American woman to join an expedition to Mount Everest. She made it to Camp 3 before she was turned away from the smaller all-male summit team. Arlene wasn't finished yet. She wanted to break this barrier, the 8,000-meter ceiling. Because at that point, no American woman had ever climbed to 8,000 meters. And I knew women could from our experience on Denali and on Everest. I'd gotten pretty close to 8,000 meters, so I thought it was time, time for women to have a chance. Okay, so here's the thing about 8,000 meters. Once you get above that altitude, you're in the mountain's death zone. The air is so thin that your body literally begins to shut down. Your brain and your heart begin to swell. Your lungs can fill with fluid, and the simple act of walking feels like slogging through wet cement while breathing through a straw. Arlene wanted to prove that American women could hack it at 8,000 meters, and she wanted to do it on Annapurna. It was the 10th highest mountain, the first one ever climbed of the 8,000-meter peaks, so I hoped it would turn out to be the safest and the easiest. And as is probably known now, it is the most dangerous and probably among the hardest, but we didn't know that. In Annapurna's history at that point, only eight people had ever successfully summited, and eight others had died trying to get to the top. So Arlene was up against a dangerous mountain, but she was also up against some challenges at home. There was something about the 1970s in America that was particularly resistant to the idea of female Himalayan climbers. I asked Katie Ives about this. I mean, my take is that it had to do with what was going on with American culture at the time. It had to do with 
the debates about the Equal Rights Amendment had to do with a sense of traditional gender boundaries blurring and people being uneasy with it with the beginnings of the culture wars. They also had a lot of support. There were a lot of women who saw this as a chance to prove something bigger than just mountaineering, as a chance to prove that women could belong in the highest places of the world, whether that was in the mountains or whether that was in American society. Arlene put together a team of 13 women, including a small film crew and a base camp manager. They were women from a range of ages. There was, um, I guess, the youngest woman at the time was 20. Uh, The oldest woman was 49, and she turned 50 during the climb. Most of them were either college students or professionals. Uh, Many of them had been successful uh, in their own fields outside of climbing. You know, you had women like Irene Miller, who was a physicist, um, had gotten a PhD at Stanford. Um, You had women like Arlene herself, who was a um, biophysical chemist and was already starting to do very important research. So they'd, they'd all experienced that sense of kind of broadening opportunities for women in the 1970s in terms of, or specifically middle-class women, in terms of entering um, formerly male professions within their working lives, not just within mountaineering. In order to fund the climb, they came up with these t-shirts that read, a woman's place is on top. It made a splash, and they raised $80,000, just enough to pay for the trip. Was there something inherently different about the way an all-women's expedition ran? That was something that was discussed from the very beginning. You know, would the women recreate the experiences of men's adventures? Would they recreate the experiences of male leadership styles, of um, male teamwork styles? Or would they try to invent something that was new? And that was something that they discussed a fair amount before the expedition of, you know, what did it mean? What does it mean to approach this mountain as a woman's place? For Arlene and the others, this was a big question, and it came with a lot of responsibility and visibility. People were watching, and the film crew would capture it all. Up here, all forces of nature are arrayed against human life. Humanity's presence is tenuous at best. Even so, the climber is drawn irresistibly upward, mind and spirit pulling the body through a series of struggles. In late summer of 1978, the team flew to Nepal. Their journey would follow the Dutch rib. This is a long, technical route that slices its way up through the steep ice and rock on the mountain's north face. It was not just a walk uphill. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Um, I think, you know, they were climbing the mountain in what we refer to as siege style. And that meant that they were setting up a series of camps 
at various stages in the mountain. And so they were fixing ropes to make going up and down more easy. Um, they were moving, you know, hundreds of pounds of gear. Um, so it's a, it's, it was definitely something, and Arlene said this to me when we were, we were talking about the exhibition, that sort of people have this idea of going to climb a Himalayan peak is something glamorous. And, you know, really it's just a lot of, you know, a lot of hard work. And I think a lot of people assumed that the Sherpas were doing a lot of work for them, you know, fixing the ropes and ferrying loads. But, but actually, as you point out, I mean, these, these women were really doing a lot of the work themselves. Well, you have to understand in the context of the times. I think when people nowadays, when people think of Himalayan expeditions with Sherpas, they think of commercial climbing. Um, you know, the, the expedition workers are going to break trail. They're going to fix all the ropes, um, establish the camps. And, you know, 1970s expeditions weren't like that at all. You know, the women and Sherpas both were leading. Um, initially, many of the women on the team didn't want the Sherpas to do any leading at all. Um, they wanted to have the all the leading done by women. Um, some of the women didn't want any of the Sherpas to join the uh, summit push either. Um, and I think that Arlene ended up deciding to allow the Sherpas to be involved with some of the leading and later on to join the summit push, and partly because she felt that that she wanted to treat them more as equal members of the team. And uh, it's interesting that later on, of course, that was one of the things that she got criticized for. But, you know, I think there was an impulse to be a little more inclusive. I mean, the other thing, too, is that the team that had climbed the same route, the the Dutch Rib in 1977, um, they had also included Sherpa members. And on their team, the Sherpas had also led some of the pitches. And there had also been a Sherpa climber on the summit push. So essentially, Arlene's team was climbing in pretty much exactly the same style as the Dutch team had before. And yet it got judged sort of on a totally different level. It did. So typical. (laughs) On this climb, as in all climbs, It didn't take long before some tensions surfaced. This was an extremely avalanche-prone mountain. A couple of weeks in, there was a huge avalanche that ran all the way to base camp. Marty, look out! The, I think it was passing Sherpa, it was the cook, um, actually, like, ran out and sprinkled some, like, holy rice on the avalanche and supposedly stopped it in its tracks. But shortly after, another avalanche slammed into the film crew that was working above Camp 1. Arlene saw it hit from Camp 2. She described it as a tidal wave of ice. The avalanche cloud actually knocked one woman into a crevasse. And fortunately, there was a snow bridge that kept her from falling all the way down, and she was able to get out uninjured. But, you know, after that, I think that... It was through this moment when everybody realized just how dangerous this was going to be. The heavy monsoon is causing slides all over the mountain. In their frequency and power, they surpass avalanches of previous years. On some mountains, climbers can escape avalanches early in the day. But on this one, no time is safe. You know, there was a particular stretch of the route that was being hit by avalanches constantly. I think that for a lot of them, there was this feeling of, you know, every time they crossed that stretch of the route, there was this question of like, you know, is this it? You know, am I I going to live? There is a buildup of anxiety and anticipation. 
tensions have developed inside each climber. There is a need to share thoughts and feelings, and so they get together. They try to express their fears and doubts, to talk out the differences among them, to relieve the stress. I'm afraid, and if I see something that, if I see something that could mean a matter of life and death if you fall off a fixed rope, then I blow up first. I mean, and I and and it's a mistake maybe not to stop and think how can I do this most constructively so no one's hurt. And I'm very sorry. Katie Ives says these group sessions were productive and effective. The women really did support each other. Okay, I'm sorry. I understood you. On October 15th, after six weeks on the mountain, a small team left for Camp 4, and then Camp 5, and then toward the summit. The first summit team, uh, and that consisted of Irene Miller, Vera Kormakova, Chuing Rinjing Sherpa, Migma Sering Sherpa, uh, reached the top on October 15th. No American women have ever climbed so high. But the accomplishment is much more than a fact in the record books. It means that a small group of individuals working together withstood the forces of one of the world's most formidable mountains and achieved their goal. It was a euphoric moment. They all could have gone home as victors. But having come this far and survived so much, a second team made up of just Allison Chadwick Oniskiewicz and Vera Watson also wanted to make a summit bid. Allison, in particular, was planning to do it without Sherpa support. Um, she felt that it was important to do this as an all-women's climb, um, and so she didn't want to be accompanied by men. A lot of people felt, you know, they'd, they'd been on the mountain for so many weeks, you know, they'd finally accomplished the team goal and that it was time to go home. Arlene tried to talk them out of it. Uh, Lop Sang Sering tried to talk them out of it. Migma Sering Sherpa tried to talk them out of it. Chewing Rinjing Sherpa tried to talk them out of it. Um, you know, other women on the team tried to talk them out of it. But, you know, they, they, made, the, they made the decision to go for it. Can you tell us what happened? Two days went by, and then a search, the search party that consisted of Migma Sering Sherpa and Lakpa Norbu Sherpa headed up on the third day. Um, you know, they'd been looking through binoculars, trying to find them. They hadn't seen any sign of them. There was radio silence. Um, I mean, I think there was probably a real feeling of dread. Heavy winds are a prelude to the worst report. Transition from Camp 2. This is Camp 1, over. Could Camp 3 come on the air, too, please? Over. We have bad news. Um, the ship has found Vera and Allison's bodies uh, off to the left of Camp 4. They think they slipped somewhere near Camp 5 and fell down there. The bodies were separate, which means they probably were dead when they landed, because if one of them had been alive, we assume they would have gone over to where the other one was. Over. Every time I read that, I just want to cry because, you know, it's, I mean, there's just that sense of, you know, the, I mean, there was a lot of real love that and sisterhood that existed between the women on this team, and um, 
you know, it was a, it was a horrible loss. It was devastating for everybody. On the one hand, the expedition achieved its dream. Women stood on top of the world. But on the other hand... You know, I, I think the loss of Vera and Allison for us was much bigger than the fact that we climbed the mountain. That sentiment was also true for some of the expedition's critics, who focused on the tragedy more than the achievement. And the criticism was fairly intense. Outside Magazine, in fact, printed an article in 1981 that implied that the Sherpas had done most of the hard work on the climb and that the group was blinded to danger by their own ambition. Yeah, that was an argument that was floating around in the media a lot at the time, was this idea that, you know, women couldn't be trusted to climb the mountains because they were there for you know, political reasons and their, like, feminism would somehow distract them from climbing safely. Um, You know, I think that what always sort of looking at that argument from the perspective of 2017, um, you know, I think today we're we're more inclined to say, well, everybody climbs for reasons other than just climbing. You know, it's, you know, you look at the, the men's expeditions of the, you know, going back to the 1950s and they were there for nationalistic reasons. Um, there was certainly a lot of national, British nationalism around the first ascent of Mount Everest. Um, you know, and then you look at all the many reasons why people climb today. And, you know, some people, it's hard to imagine anybody climbing in this state of sort of absolute purity where there's no sort of outside influence at all. Um, so, yeah, there was there's absolutely a, a there's absolutely been a double standard in terms of how women are judged when they take risks versus how men are judged. And as Katie Ives points out, people die all the time. It's just part of the deal. But she says despite the carping, the climb did change things for women and for the sport. It became, I, I, I don't think it was intended this way, but it, it became such an explicitly political statement that women could climb in the high mountains. And it made it seem more normal. You know, people look at adventure narratives as these sort of traditional ur-narratives of humanity. And we're so invested in this idea of sort of the hero's journey. And when you put women into that role as the as protagonists in these kinds of stories, it does send a message that says women can be in this space too. Um, you know, women can be on these high mountains. Women can be these kinds of characters in these kinds of stories. This world isn't only reserved for men. By the early 1980s, Arlene Bloom retired from high altitude climbing She also left her job at the chemistry department at Berkeley. She wanted to keep adventuring, so she spent most of a year walking across the Himalayas. She took up with a dive instructor. She raised a daughter. But 26 years later, the world-changing possibilities of science called her back. Now she works as the founding director of the Green Science Policy Institute, which has been incredibly effective at getting toxic chemicals like flame retardants out of the U.S. marketplace. 
I do almost all my meetings while walking. Oh, really? That's and great. I walk with uh, people from industry. I walk with people from the chemical industry. I walk with people from government. You know, anybody who wants to get together with me, I say, let's take a walk. And then we have great ideas. We're inspired. Maybe it's like the golf course. <laughs> <So for me laughs> it's the trail. And in fact, some of my friends say, okay, we'll take a walk with you, but you have to promise not to say anything about chemicals for at least <laughs> half the time. <laughs> I think um, someone once called you the queen of tenacity. Oh, yeah. That's probably a good skill to have in your current role, too, taking on the chemical industry. Yeah, it's actually just like Himalayan mountain climbing. Because you have a, an objective, is it a beautiful mountain summit or is it a planet free of harmful toxic chemicals? And you assemble a team of people who share your desire to reach the summit and then you face avalanches and rockfalls and even yetis. Arlene is still a fighter and a team builder. She's at home in this space, walking uphill for however long it takes. You just kind of keep plodding upward step by step in spite of all the obstacles because the goal is so important. It's her goal, but she easily brings others along, surveying the grand terrain and looking out for the newts. The nice thing here is the mud isn't deep. It is solid mud. <laughs> the rain is lighting up. Look at it. That was Florence Williams talking with Arlene Bloom. Thanks to Diana Taylor and Marie Ashton for letting us use audio from the documentary they made about the climb. This piece was produced and edited by Phoebe Flanagan. Music by Dennis Funk. And thanks again to REI Co-op for sponsoring this series. You can check out all their new offerings for women at rei.com forceofnature. And if you're looking for more awesome audio, check out Her Money. Her Money is hosted by Jean Chatsky, personal finance expert and author of the New York Times bestseller, Age Proof. And it was created to empower women to take control of their financial lives. Whether you're a woman yourself or you have women in your life that you care about, you should check this one out. Her Money features great interviews with inspiring women, from Ariana Huffington to Joanna Coles to Bryn Brown. It's the place to learn about earning more, saving more, investing wisely, and building the financial life you want. You can find Her Money on iTunes, Stitcher, or on genechatsky.com. Next week, we're moving from the Himalayan mountains to the flatlands of Oklahoma for a story about extreme weather. Specifically, the story of the largest tornado ever recorded and how it changed storm chasing forever. And we'll be back with more Double X Factor in May. <laughs>